here with uh, Carrie Solomon and Chuck Councilman, the writers, producers, co-directors of Unplanned, uh, the story of Abby Johnson and Tara coming out of the abortion industry and being a really pro-life uh, mover and shaker today. And I want to talk to you all about kind of about generally like Hollywood and how it works. And then we can talk more specifically about the movie. Um, you all are making a very unpopular movie in Hollywood now. How did that happen? We're, we're making a very pro, pro-life pro movie in a very pro-choice town. Right. Yeah. How does that happen? Well, it started off with uh, a woman of our acquaintance uh, who is Catholic uh, coming up to us. She found us at our usual watering hole, which is a coffee shop, and um, had a copy of Abby's book and handed it off to us and said, you guys need to make this a movie. And um, we nodded politely and we took the book and uh, I took a look at it first and I was profoundly moved by the book. I, I knew that this was a very challenging piece of work and commercially, I mean, uh, an abortion project. Oh my goodness! You know who's going to go see a movie about that? Um, but I felt very strongly that this was really solid material. So I approached Carrie with a certain look on my face that suggested, "Uh oh, here it comes." And I handed him the book and I said, uh, "I think you need to read this." From that moment on, I knew I was doomed because we wanted to do a western. <laughs> uh, <coughs> we wanted to do a western, and. Uh, it just was not going to happen. After we read the book, we knew that the Lord was all over it. I mean, and, and the book itself was so, I mean, we just knew that this is a story that had to be told. And as, as storytellers, when that happens, you're just drawn to it. But there was an anointing on the book. There was an anointing on the story. And so that lured us. We knew we had a sense that the Lord would want this to be done. Even when we, when we finally committed to say, Lord, if this is what you want, we will go do this. We'll, we'll throw ourselves behind this. I think the Lord allowed us to feel a little bit of his delight mm -hmm. at, that at that time. And it didn't last forever. Right. I wish it had because it was really, right. really neat. But he right. just let us feel a little bit of his delight. Now tell me, as writers, how do you approach uh, like making this book into a screenplay? How do, how do you approach that? Well, you the first thing you do as a writer is, if you're good, I think, is that you read the book, you get all the data out of it, you know, you kind of get a sense of beginning, middle, and end. But what you then do is, if you're going to get serious about it, if you commit to it, the first thing we always do is pray. Once the Lord gives his approval and says, yes, I want you to do this, then we call the parties if they're alive. If it's a story like this where you have people that are actually exist, it's not just made up. And we interview those people, and we get as much data and information on them, and on the lawyers. You just and on... you just let them talk. You just <coughs> you spend time with them. You hope that they will come to trust you. That they'll open up. You know, tell then, us stories about their lives that weren't in the book. Just start talking, and 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 just and then you just probe with some questions, and and mostly if it's someone who's close to your subject. You can just keep letting them talk and talk and talk, and just these wonderful little moments will will start. You do start that for about a week, you know, seven, ten days, however long yeah. it takes. But you also find out the color of the car she drove in 1985, and uh -huh. you know what kind of car was it? What kind of beer did he drink? And because that adds color, it you, 
And the choices that people make in real life are very interesting comparatively that the choices that the average movie maker would choose for them. So, you know, like if it was a beer, the average movie director would say, okay, who's going to pay us to put the beer in? So you get, let's say, Cerveza uh -huh. in there because they paid $10,000. Uh -huh. But that's not what he... He'd probably in real life so, hate that. As yeah. an example, there's a scene in the movie where Abby and her husband Doug are at a Mexican restaurant and they're having kind of a romantic night out. And he's going to have, he suggests they're going to have a film festival at their house. They're going to flip a coin. And uh, if, if he wins, if she wins, they'll get to watch Gone with the Wind. And uh, if he wins, they'll watch The Goonies. Well, in real life, and she, she suggests a compromise watching 300. The backstory there is... Doug's real movie, favorite movie in, in real life uh, as a grown man is The Goonies, which is a little crazy. And he says of Abby, she'll tell you her favorite movie in the world is Gone with the Wind. He's like, that's number two. Her real favorite is 300. <laughs> so, so we just have fun with what's yeah. the truth and it, yeah. and it just makes a nice movie moment. So you gain all the data that you can gain. You interview all the people that you can interview. And then ultimately it comes back down to uh, we do a lot of driving around, a lot of coffee drinking, you know, hanging out, just being by the pool, doing whatever we are. But we start talking dialogue back and forth to each other. And we start talking scenes back and forth. And they don't, they're not in any order. It'll be something good. Or we'll see a book in a store and have a great phrase on it. And we just start assembling data. Now, not everyone does it this way, but this is the way we do it. We assemble data that we're going to start integrating into the story. But Abby's actual life story suggested a natural progression, and her book uh, followed pretty much right. that progression. Uh, it it jumped a deliberately jumped a couple things out of sequence chronologically. We said, well, you know what? That probably makes sense for the movie too. Yeah. So uh, and well, it had a beginning, a middle, and an end, yeah. which is what you if you don't have a beginning, a middle, and end, you've got to work that. And then it had, you know, we figured like the average movie's got about 30, 35 scenes, sequence, whatever, give or take, between 30 and 35, usually 40. So her book gave us maybe 22, 23, 24 of those scenes. Her interviews gave us the rest. Yeah. And so then you, in the book, because we had it, we just kept it in the same order. So the, that was kind of easy. The yeah. toughest part with a story like Abby's is parting with stuff you'd like to put in. Mm -hmm but shouldn't be there. And the fact that she was dislikable. I mean, this is the person who murdered 22,000, was responsible for, and for overseeing. Uh -huh. She was the concentration camp, you know, right. uh, general. Yeah. So uh, the, ca the camp commander of 22,000 deaths. So how do, you, <clears throat> how do you look at that and make that, tell the truth about that, but not to the point where people in the audience are saying, I can't like this woman. Yeah. I don't care what you do. Yeah. And so it's a very fine line, but yeah. you start working. But fortunately, way. Abby provided the answer there too, which was, and this is why her sin at a certain level is very forgivable, or at least un un understandable. All she ever wanted to do was help women. Right. So even when she was absolutely committed to the pro-choice cause, she was trying to change laws, she would have torn up anybody who tried to take away that that what she perceived as a right or privilege. She was very strongly committed to trying to help women. She thought she was helping women. Yeah, That's why she was so passionate. Yeah. And it seemed like, too, a big, tough dimension here is you have a picture's worth a thousand words, so you have video, and you can express so much in, like, one scene, one picture, maybe to convey some of these points you need to convey, and that 
you know, not show us, not tell us everything. How do you make those decisions? That seemed like that would be hard. It's an instinctual thing, I think. Um, we had a priest tell us once that, uh, and I believe this thoroughly, that we have a charism to work together, that the Lord brought us together for his purpose. And I believe that because what I'm strong in, he's weak in. And what he's strong in, I'm weak in. You mean I'm weak in something? Yes. <laughs> what is your strength? Uh, my strength, uh, I would think, well, I'll tell you Chuck's strengths because it's, it'll be better that I don't tell you my, and uh, he can tell you mine. But Chuck's strengths are, he's the smartest person I've ever met. He only he knows has, three people. <laughs> <laughs> he has tremendous data retention. He can collate and, and gather material in mass amounts. I, I, I always go back to form and structure. Form and structure, form and structure, form and structure. Logical storytelling says do A, B, C, and D. That's how A, B, and C, D would, uh -huh. would apply to this story. He takes the rule book and throws it out the window and makes it fun and interesting. He knows when to break the rules. Now, you're from New York? I'm from New York. I was born in, well, uh, New York, and my mom and dad unfortunately divorced. And my mom took me from Brooklyn, New York to Wayne, New Jersey. <laughs> Wayne, New Jersey is an upper middle class, really kind of... Yeah. But, you know, white suburban, really nice neighborhood, unlike where I lived in uh, New York. And the kid next door was him. And so he's been following me around ever since. But right. doesn't New Yorkers have a certain really, they bring like a very yeah. experienced humanity. I don't know, a very realism. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. No, my dad told me that when I was a boy. He said, if you can grow up in New York, <coughs> he says, the gladiators come out of New York. He says, there's something about New York. By the time you're 20, 21, 22, 25, you've led like four different lives <laughs> and you get to use that. And you, he was right. He was right. There was a charisma out of New York and New York, New York and New Jersey, because New York, uh, New Jersey is just New York extended. Uh, but there's, uh, there's something about it. A hundred years it ago. Jewish filmmakers that largely came out of New York, they actually had a term for it, they, they referred to it as ghetto steel. That that's what you had in your character and right. you knew how to go, you, know, you just you took the bull by the horns. You get tough very quickly because New York's, if you don't, yeah. you, yeah. It, it's a tough town. Now, how, how do you, like you make, I think of like the mission when Robert De Niro, when the Indian cuts the armor off the Robert De Niro's, that you know that scene where he's, he's he's hauling the armor up the cliff, yeah, and he's he wants forgiveness, and you don't hear a lot of words or anything. The Indian goes with a knife. You're not sure he's going to cut stab him, but he liberates him. And I thought that's I don't care. You could talk me to death, yeah. but that shows it more powerfully. What that's to me that's the magic of movies. How do yeah. you capture that's that? When, it, when, it, when it's when it's going really really well, you can do that. <laughs> Some of the greatest scenes can be done without. I think the high point of filmmaking is if you can get your scene done with no words, that's great. Um, we couldn't do much of that in this film. We actually yeah. had to. We actually had to had to play a, a little bit of sleight of hand with this. Abby's does a lot of voiceover in this film, and we normally don't like voiceover. And voiceover is normally a crutch for storytelling, but we had a dilemma. It's a cheap. It's a cheap trick for the but, most part. for the most part. But what happened was. And this mirrors Abby in, the, in her book as well. Um, we spend a lot of the movie watching Abby do things that from a pro-life standpoint are very unsympathetic. And 
the person who's sort of our spirit guide on that journey is Abby, but it's future Abby. Future Abby. Redeemed, post converted, saved. Post-redemption, right. post-receipt of grace. The future Abby, who's a new person in Christ, is telling us, and she's letting us know what she was experiencing, and sometimes her reflections on those events. So for instance, in one scene, after Abby has had a near death of a young woman who she knows, who came to the clinic that day, a 15-year-old girl who hemorrhages <coughs> and bleeds to death, they finally patch her together, they get her out the door with her father, the clinic is closed, Abby at that time is pregnant, and on that same Saturday or afternoon by that point, they have a baby shower for her in the abortion facility. So they've terminated nearly 40 babies in the last four or five hours. And then they spend two hours with cake and flowers and baby gifts and acting a little bit silly. A girl's, you know, afternoon out celebrating Abby's pregnancy. And in the moment, Abby doesn't realize the irony of that in any real sense. There's kind of a... And future Abby kind of gets it. And she kind of lets us... No, like, yeah, that was a little, that was a little strange. You use all the tools and tricks and craft that you use. If you're a carpenter for 30 years, you know where to put the nail and how to hammer it and how to angle it and certain things, even though they're by the book, they're supposed to work. They never work right. So you do it this way. You know, you learn all those techniques and tricks, you know, things like uh, getting a scene to basically be without words. You can do that. We have one of those that, that, that has that kind of impact in our film, which is that Abby, at one point, there's an African-American family. Uh, the, the family knows that their 20-year-old, give or take daughter, will be coming for an abortion that day. And they're praying outside the fence, begging the young woman not to do it. She shows up and she gets out of her car. And then out of the back seat of the car comes her two or three-year-old little girl with her and the grandmother is begging her daughter and, you know she says look the, the baby you're carrying will be just as beautiful as her the young woman goes in the facility anyway abby is rattled and she was rattled in real life and then what she does in the film is what she did in real life once the clinic is closed that day she goes to the file room and she does what she's never done she opens up her own patient file and she looks at the ultrasound, which she has never before seen, of her own unborn child who was aborted at the facility. And that's a brief moment in the film, but it's one of those really But even if you take moments. even if you take that <coughs> as an example, sometimes the choice you make doesn't work. Yeah. But the nice thing, until you're rolling the camera, doesn't matter. You can change it. Yeah. So you go with your instinct. If it works, fine. If it doesn't work, then you modify. That's what's kind of hit me about the movies, is that it, you know, because you know you want to make good productions here and stuff, and it's like, and I thought like Hollywood is pumping all this movie, super talented people, all this money, super talented people, and every now and then they get it right, right. And it's like it's not a formula. It's a, right? Well, it's not a formula. It, it is a mathematical thing for the studios. Because they cookie cutter everything and they yeah. don't. So that's why they get one in 10 or one in 20, right? It just, just happens to be a great subject, whatever it is. But and sometimes it's like just the heart of it. You can have like a cheapo movie 
right out of the 70s or something, but it's a coming-of-age movie, and it just captures the heart of something. The breaking aways of this world. Exactly. Yes. That's exactly what I was thinking of. <laughs> but it, it's, it, that's, the, that for us is, uh, that's the holy grail. You look for the story where you, you typically what happens in those stories is you're experiencing a, a standard yearning or a standard you know, f- set of emotions, but in a world or an environment that you haven't seen it before. So uh, a lot of times it's a story of maybe a, a, an obsession. And it's someone's uh, story of how they go about, you know, pursuing, whether it's breaking away like that or whether it's uh, Dr. Frankenstein. You know, obsessions tend to be very, very, or it's Van Helsing pursuing Dracula. Uh Obsessions tend to be very, very interesting. We're drawn to watch people with obsessions. Hmm. You know, I think something I've wondered a lot, like just watching Hollywood, love movies and love so american and all that kind of stuff but some of the stuff you see you just like wondered what kind of twisted person put this together how does that stuff get made so often what the reason for that is because hollywood has a political agenda that it wishes to perpetrate on the american public they look at the american public as subpar they do not believe that the american the average american has any intellect at all I know it sounds crazy, but basically they look they look down at them uh, because they're not like them. And one of the things is that the agenda is a polit- politically communist desiring agenda. They want communism they because ultimately they don't realize it. It's the extinction of God, so therefore I can do whatever I want to do. And then on top of that, their agenda is all the things, homosexuality, um, you know, drug abuse, this, abuse this and is sex. How- and so what they're doing is, and this is why, like the Mormons, for example, will not let their people see R-rated movies. You, America needs to protect itself from these Hollywood people. But what people don't realize is they're try, you're, the Christians are right. They're trying to get your children. Mm-hmm. And it might be in college that they're looking to get them or in high school or whatever. But through the media, which is powerful, that's what they're looking to do. And so you have to... <laughs> everything is, everything is agenda-driven. Here's an example that I use. At the time of her death, a decade or so ago, at the age of 102, Lenny Riefenstahl, I don't know if that name rings any bells, Lenny Riefenstahl was a female in Nazi Germany. She directed arguably the most successful documentary of all time. She, she directed Triumph of the Will which helped Hitler cement his power over Nazi Germany. If you've ever watched the old Indiana Jones movies where you see the stormtroopers marching around at night and the flaring torches and the lights, searchlights lighting up the sky for the backdrop and the big Nazi flags, that was all her. That was all her photography at the Nuremberg party rallies. Well, at the time of her death at 102, she was actually represented by one of the big three agencies founded by a Jewish man in Hollywood. And I, it took me a while to, I mean, I couldn't even, I couldn't even grasp how that could be the case. And then eventually I figured it out. It was, oh, in Hollywood's thinking, her standing as an early female director trumped the fact that she helped the Nazis come to power and cement their great. It was more important that, that female liberation agenda in the film industry right. 
trumped anything else that she did. You done. also have to remember, you also have to remember that the people that are making these movie are, are these movies and TV projects are flawed. They have bought into the agenda. And so some of them are like really And they view Christianity as their enemy. Right. I mean that's just a, that's just that's just the way it is. And you shocked me earlier, you told me that I thought money trumped trumped everything. That's the general perception. But that's not true. No, political agenda trumps everything. That money is Hollywood's not Hollywood's God, it's Hollywood's demigod. That's why you don't see more good faith-driven fare. Because if I was, if I if if someone came to, a lot of times, and this is the lament of so many people in middle middle America, mom and dad, they'll be like, why don't they make more good movies? Yeah. You know, and yeah. we'd go, you know, and they'd make money. I don't understand Hallmark, it. right? There you go. So that's a feel-good movie. It's a feel-good. <laughs> although the Christmas movies have all the tinsel and none of the Jesus, but okay, we'll go there. <laughs> But in terms of the theatrical releases, why don't they make you know more good good movies? Why don't there more? Or, and and what I say to them is, if I came up to you and I offered you a bunch of money to make a movie that violated every standard and every precept you have to violate your faith and do everything else for money, would you make that? And they look at me a lot of times and say, "No." What do you think? Is I said, "Well, why do you expect people in Hollywood to do that? Because their values are diametrically opposed to yours. So they are looking to make money." But they're looking to make money as they reinforce their own values. Yeah, and I, I let me go back to and ask you about Plato. You quoted Plato earlier, off before we started. That what did Plato teach about music yeah, and art? Well, Plato wanted. You know, we're twenty five hundred years ago, give or take. Plato wanted to eliminate drama from his perfect society. And he didn't want drama to exist because he felt it was a cheat. Um, that basically you could influence people's actions based on mere emotion. You could get them whipped up with some idea and then they would go follow through with it. And there wasn't really any intellectual process there. Right. It was just getting them whipped up. And he's like, no, that's a bad idea. And like movies are like emotions on crack. That's exactly right? what they are. That's exactly, they are, um, to borrow a term for, there was a movie called, uh, about 20 years ago called The Insider about the tobacco industry. And uh, they talked about that a cigarette to the tobacco industry is not a, a, a cigarette or tobacco, that's a, a nicotine delivery vehicle. That's how the, that's, that's how the, the uh, tobacco industry views a cigarette. It's a nicotine delivery vehicle. Well, movies are an emotion delivery vehicle. That's what they are. They are, they are highly engineered, polished products designed to deliver an emotional experience. And I, I even, I went to a homiletics seminar one time and the guy talked about, I think it was Aristotle's rhetoric, rules, rhetoric, and, and talked about how like, I'm like a third in, there's a problem presented, and then you have like a resolution have you, is that all? He he claims in Hollywood stories, you know, like like then there's resolution at some point. Yes, yeah. and typically what happens is this: to define it in story terms, is you want to know who is your hero, mm -hmm. what is their obstacle, mm -hmm. and what's at stake. Mm -hmm. So that's what happens. So yes, typically what happens is uh, a little less that the, all the all the all the screenwriting techniques say a quarter of the way in, but it should really be faster than that. Mm -hmm. Sometime in at the outside the first 20 minutes, a problem is presented mm -hmm. which knocks a character's life off balance. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, maybe you're having, uh, <coughs> you're pursuing whatever, you know, you're doing in life and then you listen to the radio and Pearl Harbor just happened or whatever, you know, so what, whatever it is, there's a problem that knocks the character's life off balance. Right. And then there's a, a, a number of uh, techniques for managing the conflict past there. And the thing I noticed too, just in myself, is that if it's predictable at all, it's done. Yes. Yeah. Talk about that. I mean, because life itself is not predictable. Is that we're just. Well, there's an old saying give the audience what it wants, but not in the way they expect. <laughs> right. So it's very different. It's yeah. very. And if and the Lord part, invented that technique. <laughs> and Chuck and I have sat in the rooms many, many times. And that's the first thing we'll try and do. Okay, what's the ending of the movie? We know we want him and her to fall in love. The perfect example is this movie is unplanned. Um, we knew that there was a court scene headed for the end of the movie and we knew we wanted that the shoe was going to win. But who gets excited about a court scene and, and you know, it's kind of, there was nothing special in the court and scene because it got thrown out. And we look at the actual transcript from the, from the, uh, the court case mm -hmm. and Abby's lawyer was brilliant <coughs> and he just machine gunned, you know, effectively the, the Planned Parenthood's case. There was no way to make... There was no way to make the case itself seem interesting uh -huh. because it was like they walked into a wood chipper. So right. the, the, what the Lord did in prayer to us is he showed us, he said, lose the court scene completely. And through prayer, he gave us what it is. So what we do in the end was she wins, There's but it big, looks like she loses. She's we have prepped her, with her lawyer. They're, they're walking into the court. They go up the courthouse steps. She gets threatened by the bad woman. They go in. You hear the bell calling, oye, oye, oye. We drift the camera back outside, and Abby's mother comes, comes out rushing crying out hysterically. crying. She's, she's clearly upset. So we know that Abby is lost. And Abby's basically telling us, in other words, if this was a you know, if this was a, a story, you know. A Hollywood movie. Yeah, not the story of my life. This is where there'd be an epic courtroom battle fought on my behalf. Everybody's like, that's not what happened. And she's and like, so at that moment you feel, oh man, we, she's lost. Right. But then she comes out of the courtroom and the mother turns around and her crying, her, she lights up and hugs her. And we realize she's crying out of happiness. That they've won. And then Abby's that they've VO won. is, and thank, and thank goodness, goodness for that. Because I don't think I, I could have handled it. Right. <laughs> and the husband walks out and sees them crying and says, yeah. you guys do realize we won, right? And right. then, so we we so you give the audience what they want, but not in the way they expected. Right. The audience will not forgive you if you don't give them what they want. <laughs> right. But is that unique to American cinema? Yes, like it is. Or? Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, Europeans are Europeans and Chinese Asians uh, are much more willing to see stories with down endings. Yeah. Uh, uh, Samuel Goldwyn said it best. Uh, over a hundred years ago now, he said, what Americans want is a tragedy with a happy ending. Right. And that they always have wanted that. Yeah. We probably, culturally, that's We are what culturally we want. the same cowboy that you saw in the 30s and 40s. We are the same people, other than that there is one part of America that's trying to change all of that. And, that, and that's, a, that's going back to the, to the Jewish culture thing, too. Right. That's, that's a, that's a we want to be the good guys. Yiddish theater. You know, in Yiddish theater, uh, this is just a weird point of trivia, Romeo and Juliet has a happy ending traditionally because they believe that their audience has suffered enough. So Romeo and <laughs> Romeo and Juliet in Ro, in Yiddish Romeo and Juliet, Romeo and Juliet don't die. Well, does the happy ending come from faith? I mean, just 
people in faith, sure, they believe in a happy ending. So they sure don't we? That's what yeah. that's what Tolkien always said. He yeah. he see he said that all stories are ho- are hallowed by the gospel story, and that we 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 long for we we understand there may be a terrible price to pay, but in the end, right. all if there's all not redeemed. if it doesn't work out in the end, then what's the sense? Like Paul is saying. If Christ doesn't come back, if he is not resurrected, then we're the biggest fools of all. Because the bottom line is, if there is no resurrection, what are we wasting our time Jokes for? Go have us. fun, right? <laughs> so, no, I do believe, but I do believe that, but I believe it's a God thing. I think the happy ending is a God thing. I think God wants us to look at his son's story. Now, we know that's a true story. But it has a happy, but it has a happy we ending. We all yearn for the happy ending and from the depths of our soul. We yearn we for want the happy ending, especially, especially when it's not in sight. Yeah, you know. But we we hope that I there mean, is yeah. the greatest story ever told, right? You know, I was watching the Oscars, and there's a Green Book. I I didn't even see it, yeah. but I remember yeah. just watching the directors or whatever talk at the mic, and I don't know, just was my impression that. You, know, you can get so drunk on yourselves and how great it is and everything right. that you lose perspective. Right. And I appreciate this, you know, writing something or doing something here at the network. You just focus on these little details. You make a little video and you think it's just spectacular. But you're like, it's hard to get objective, right? To step back sure. and say, is this really any good? Yeah. How do you do that? Well, uh, it's, it doesn't hurt that there are two of us. So we... And we are not afraid to say, this is good, this is bad, mm-hmm. or I don't think that works. Or, and we keep working at it. And so it actually brings a higher form of project level. Because you're trying to balance, like, follow right. your gut, but then, I mean, you can overthink anything, right? Yeah. And it, question yourself? I, yeah, the, you, then what you do is when you get something to a, whether it's screenplay or more, more in this case, once you have a film that can be looked at, you get a couple people that you you trust their judgment, uh-huh. and you sit and you watch it with them, and Is then you get their. Is it too late comment. at that point though to make changes? No, <laughs> oh, unfortunately, no, but, you know the whole process in Hollywood is that once you have a screenplay done, people start reading it, uh-huh. and you start assembling data. You read it three, five, seven, nine, fifteen, nineteen times. You start assembling data. It kind of works itself out in a very weird kind of way. Uh-huh. Because over a period of time, you get certain notes that keep resonating. And you, like, for example, something that will happen with us is that we'll get some three, five, seven people say, <coughs> this thing doesn't work for me. And then I'll look at him and I'll say to him, you know, when we did that, it didn't work for me either. So that'll mm-hmm. probably disappear. Mm-hmm. Then you get five, six, seven people say, this did work for me. And I didn't feel anything on it. Or he didn't feel anything on it. I'm not so sure they're the, right. The you, gen- you pick up an intuitive... The general rule is if 10 people tell you you look sick, it's time to see a doctor. Mm-hmm. But in certain cases, you have to say, no, there are reasons for... Like, there, there's a... I, I won't go into it, but there's a couple things in this film, the completed film. We get the same note from every filmmaker, pretty much. Mm-hmm. I believe that the, the cure for what they point out is much worse than the disease. Mm-hmm. And... I think it would destroy the movie. Uh, conversely, we never get that note from audience members. So that tells me the story right. is working. What they're doing is they're falling back on 
logic instructions saying, why is this done this way? I would do it that way with no idea of the impact of, of moving that domino right. around. So you can kind of show the film as you go along to people? Yes. Yeah, pits and pieces. Yeah. You get clips. Yeah. And then you get clips and then you get sequences. You know, you get three clips in a row and then you get six clips in a row and you can kind of show it. But eventually it all starts coming in and you start showing this and that and this and that. And all of a sudden you got a whole thing. And it's like on this, we were at 227, two hours, 27 minutes long. We cut it back to 143, mm-hmm. one hour, 43 minutes. So that was the equivalent of like 40 plus minutes that we lost. Imagine if Noah was building his ark at 20 different workstations in a field and he was working on one hunk and then when he was done with it at a certain point, he'd say, well, you like the stalls this way or whatever. I could move the beams around, but then at a certain point, he'd start pulling those pieces together and assembling it, it in one harder. place. It becomes harder to change it at that point. But it's a craft. It's a craft like anything else. It's not like writing a novel. Writing a novel, you can go off and do whatever you want. Very concise, to the point, movement. Every page has got to matter. Every scene has got to move the story forward. So you pick up after a time because your very survival depends on it. You're not going to get paid if your movie is not good. You know, you pick up what works and what doesn't. I I think that's a gift from God. Yeah. Is there tension in every scene? If not, how can I, do I drop the scene? Do I add a little bit of music? Do I change the editing? Do I re-edit the scene so that it plays from a different character's perspective? And there's a, there's, there's a whole, you know, there's a toolbox of tricks that you can, tricks and techniques that you can use to reshape material. Yeah, I was watching this. I grew up, my dad loved Columbo, so it was kind of nostalgic for me about watching old 70s Columbo episode. And there was one with Johnny Cash and, Johnny Cash. Can't Johnny play. Cash. Well, I used to love Columbo, but I don't remember Johnny Cash. Yeah, he plays this, this music singer. Oh, my goodness. He's got horrible parts where he can't act, but then his own natural charisma comes through. Yep. And I watched this I watched this thing, and I was saying, why is this? I grew up really in the 80s. We mocked the 70s. Everything 70s was bad. Now I'm fascinated with 70s film and stuff. I was like, why is this work? And one of the things was tension. Yeah. There's always tension between Columbo and the villain. Right. And it, the whole thing. And conflict. it's like that, always. Yeah. You are Great waiting. writers are conflict managers. That's all we are. Uh, and that was and Columbo was written by a team too, I believe. It was it was, was two guys, yeah. Yeah. You gotta remember that uh, <clears throat> especially on TV, you only have forty five minute, forty seven minutes, uh, you know, minus commercials and stuff, whatever. You got to make it move. Well, uh, and also, and, Columbo, but you need to have somebody yeah. threatening him, or that he's going to get killed, or you know, he's going to yeah. find out something. He and let's do. remember, in Columbo, in the first three minutes of the of the show, you saw the killing take place, so you knew who the killer was. Yeah, yeah. And amazingly, close to twenty percent of the American public didn't know who the killer was, even though they'd seen them do the killing at the beginning of the show. <laughs> they were still trying to figure out who did it at the end. I and I said I got this nostalgic attraction to it, but I remember watching like this BBC Agatha Christie. It was so complex. Even at the end, when they tell you the killer, it's like I don't even know how this fits together. I'm sure it does, but I'm like thinking when you step back and look at Columbo, I said this is so simplistic, and sometimes logically it doesn't even really work. But it held me. It held me for the whole. Columbo, because Columbo was totally character driven. Yeah. You were there to see your friend, Detective Columbo, yeah. pursue whatever it was he was up against that week. And the case 
at a certain level was secondary. Yeah. You wanted to see him in that trench coat doing his thing. Yeah. And you knew there was always more going on than he was showing. And you were trying to figure out what he was doing more than you were interested in the case itself. <laughs> you know, the other thing that fascinates me too is some of the older movies, like 50s, 60s, when they show, like, uh, it's kind of like a stylized presentation of men that just, they kind of like, they know what needs to be done. They do it. They're kind of, they're not like these super macho guys, but there's just this kind of toughness, solidity, moving forward. They know what to do, and they're not messing around. They're comfortable in their own skin, and they just go do it. Yeah. yeah. What happened? <laughs> well, okay, let's go back to the point you made earlier. When you're talking about what's the most important thing Hollywood wants. Well, our children are under siege, especially the little boys right now. Uh, they're being stripped of all the things that made a man a man. Hollywood, <coughs> in the 80s, realized that Die Hard and all these action movies were making men empowered. Uh -huh. Men were, you know, cowboy movies make men feel like, oh, again, goes back to what we were talking about with the Jews, the empire of their own, giving them men or an identity. Hollywood is stripping the identity of men because they don't want men to be men. Yeah. They want men to be women. And the problem is, and that's their agenda. And so when you watch it happen movie after movie, my little boy hates it. He'll go to his thing, and all of a sudden, it's the girl that's the hero. Always. And there are no boy stories anymore. Always. They've gotten rid of boy stories now. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's basically part and parcel of the agenda of the Hollywood movie industry. Ever, ever, since, the, ever since the first Disney princess picked up a sword... Okay, and you know Mulan. There's never been a boy that's picked up a sword and become the hero. The it's boy just is usually the, the doofus. Anymore. He's incapable. Right. He's incompetent. But he'll fall for her because she's pretty and daring and forward, and she's the boss. Yeah. And so they're indoctrinating all these young boys into it, and it's a serious problem because the movies yeah. are that powerful. Yeah. I mean, the thing that that keeps me from losing hope. So I, I feel like it's written in our DNA. It is. It is. You know, I think deep down, women want men to be masculine, to be strong. Yes, they do. To be chivalrous, you know, to be... Women at large, not women in Hollywood. Yeah. And, and, and therein lies the disconnect. Yeah. There's inside the bubble, and movie making is controlled from inside the bubble. What and can inside, happen inside is Inside also... the bubble, masculinity yeah. is toxic. <coughs> yeah. What can happen also... So if you make a movie and you tap back into that, men can tap into that again and get right. the battery. It's yeah. a memory. It's yeah. it's there's a there's a there's a war movie that we've been told we've in prayer we've gotten from the Lord that we'll make it one day and it, it's it it's a, a war movie but but targeted for more of a younger audience. I know it's gonna sound a little strange, but we're like Lord, uh, why do you want us to do this? And what Carrie got in prayer was valor. In other words that young men need to be instructed in terms of what valor is. This can help teach them what valor is because no one is doing that. Yeah, I think Tolkien, right? Wasn't that his motivation for Lord of the Rings? I remember some quote like Part of that. it. I'm sorry? Part of it. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't... I mean, some people wanted to reduce it just to like trying to arouse England to fight in World War II. But I think on a deeper level, it was to, yeah, to combat evil, to... His, well, his goal was the marriage of the, because he was obviously a professor of you know, medieval studies and so forth, it was the marriage of the old Anglo-Saxon pagan idea of the high doom, the hero who goes to a high doom 
and suffers, a, almost a suffering servant in a way for his people mm -hmm. with the Christian ideals. So he was looking to take that heroic concept and marry it into a Christian worldview in a world that did not have in its design Christ himself. Yeah. And that was what he always was, was looking to do to impart those values. Yeah. yeah. He was a devout Catholic, grew up with a priest as a father. Uh, his older brother his was older the brother. priest, yeah. And, and the, I mean, he wanted to create a world where all these virtues that we used to claim lived. And that also, if you pay a price on this sacrifice, it's worth it. And, you know, and to that die was the, for what you believe in. That was in the great disservice that the films did to his, to his world. Because in the, in the actual films, basically every, every figure of power and authority was craven. And didn't deserve power. Other than he's, he's, they, they play with Aragorn, but Aragorn, the he's true king, thing. is reluctant. He tries to run from his destiny. You know, that's, re that's really great for coming-of-age stories, but I don't think it was right for the Lord of the we Rings. Were talk we are Tolkien fanatics. We studied Tolkien. We wanted to do a movie on it and stuff. The problem with the Tolkien movies is if you are a true Tolkien fanatic, you know that the books went... Now, this is definitely going to... A lot of people are not going to agree. But if you read the books and then you look at the Tolkien movies, they are not the same. The books were magnificent. I mean, I'm the best piece of literary material I've ever read. But many of the things that made it great and noble, they they gutted out of the movies because they wanted to go back again to agenda. What's their agenda? Yeah. <clears throat> All authority figures are craven. Not good. Dying for your country. Not good. You know, they do it. Okay. Uh, reluctant king. He doesn't want to do it. Who gets saved Strong by his girlfriend? female. Gets, gets saved by his girlfriend, basically. I mean, come on. Was that uh, in the book? I was wondering. No, no, no. Aragorn in the book was a Aragorn in the book was a man's man. Ar yeah. The father, the father of his bride to be in in the actual book tells when when Aragorn seeks the hand of the da daughter of El Elrond. Elrond tells him the only mortal, in other words, who my daughter would ever wed. Uh, must be the, the king of the united realms. Realms that have not been united. They've fallen into disarray for a thousand years. He's like, you go out and you accomplish that. So Aragorn does that. And you'll be worthy of my daughter. Oh, yeah. But that is the only way I will consent to her marriage. And that's what I mean, there was a Aragorn lot of things in the, in the movie. You know, they had the elves in the wrong places. And, you know, just all, all the moral, spiritual especially, was, was yeah. manipulated against. Well, but... As writers, talk about like the inspiration, like the, the female inspiration. I don't remember the details, like Gladriel or something. In in story, it seems like, well, even like in our faith, you know, I was just reading about uh, Our Lady of Antigua and inspiring the reconquest of Spain and then explorers to the New World. And do you all write write that into your story somehow? The female inspiration for the male hero or... I mean, yeah, I mean, from the beginning of time, women have inspired men to do everything from going to war to dying to mm -hmm. saving them. And uh, I mean, there is a place, we believe, for the female virtuous hero, the same thing as for the, the male virtuous hero. And they should feed off each other, you know, man and woman being brought together, you know, that ultimate love. But the bottom line is that Hollywood, again, has taken it too far. Yeah. The women are not supposed to be men. And that comes down to a whole nother thing. It's a whole nother issue. It's a homosexuality issue. Yeah. I mean, and they, they, they are bombarding 
It was America. It was really neat when it was different when you watched Sigourney Weaver in Aliens, and she triumphed. And it that's was the second one. That's yeah. the yes. That was you know, I always said that. I said that was a, a believable female heroine because she she loved the little girl. She still right. had maternal thing. The whole issue was motherhood, yeah. evil yeah. alien motherhood yeah. versus human noble her, motherhood. Yeah. <laughs> she triumphed. I mean, it, 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 was, it was phenomenal. Yeah, and it was complete completely appropriate for that story and it was again you you did not expect it because she didn't start out as the hero yeah she just yeah. grew and it was wonderful there yeah. it just shouldn't be every movie yeah yeah uh, yeah to me like it worked and that and that's what i feel like i watch a lot of it now and it just seems so contrived and and now i mean it used to make me more angry and now i just feel like you know, you're doing like this caricature of male strength. And it's it's always going to be frustrating for women because that's really not who you are, your nature. You're trying to make them like women, like men. And it's like, but a caricature of men even. <laughs> and it's just not going to be satisfying. You know, it just seems like there's a big market for reality. You well, know? That's, that's what's, <laughs> I mean, it's starting to sound like that. I, I don't keep up with the superhero stuff. I'm just very weary of it. I can't watch any of it. But then so the latest, the Captain Marvel movie that's coming out, yeah. with, apparently they time travel back so Captain Marvel, who's a woman, can fight for feminism. And then, they, <laughs> and, then, and then on top of that, they've let the young male audience know that they're not really welcome. And I'm like, this is madness. Yeah. This is madness because th these are the movies you're making for. I mean, the standard, the just the economic sense of the movie industry, the primary moviegoer is a 15 to 29-year-old male. Really? And when you do a big, yeah, absolutely. They've always, yeah. they've always been the driving force there. Well, in, 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 in the modern era, you know, the, the, yeah. the, for the, your, the first Star Wars and beyond, the first Jaws and beyond, that's that's been the strongest demographic. So then to alienate your strongest demographic when you've got, you know, the better part of half a billion dollars invested in a movie, I, to me it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you too about um actors and and I, I remember it struck me one time just you know, some internet thing about how many actors like went to Hollywood not finishing high school. And just, you know, it was a, a million that failed, but like some really big ones like went, I think like Al Pacino and Charlize Theron and stuff. It's like, they just went and gave it everything they have. Yep. And it's like, it, it's almost like it draws a certain neurotic people. <laughs> Why would you leave failing? It absolutely <laughs> does. It absolutely yep. does. Uh, look, actors, uh, and, and uh, I want to, I don't want to be unkind here. I want to be, because they're, 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 they're very gifted at what fluid. they do. But as you know, uh, uh, here's here's a here's a story that will kind of. Uh, we had a manager years ago who was a self self-described psychological terrorist, but he said one of the things he said he said every actor has a closet in their house, and and he meant this literally, not metaphorically. He said every actor has a closet. And it's full of whatever they did weren't able to have as a child. Mm -hmm. He said, for me, it's socks, clean white socks. He says, I probably have 150 pairs of them so that I know I'll <laughs> never run out. He says, every actor I know has a closet like that. Mm -hmm. It's just the only thing that changes is what's inside. Mm -hmm. 
actors tend to be people from very troubled backgrounds and they tend to have very unresolved personal issues. Yeah. So they're fighting those demons. And unfortunately, in most cases, they haven't come to Christ. They don't have reconciliation mm -hmm. to help them get mm -hmm. through it. So they're dealing with those unresolved issues for most, if not all, of their career. And that, that gives them a certain energy or is it because they've tried to escape when they were younger because of difficult circumstances? What would it be like to be this person? They kind of played? Yes. They've, they've pretended yeah. to be someone else. Yeah. They've learned techniques. They've found comfort or safety in, in, yeah. in, in it. Or they've, you know, one actor we knew. Um, well, it's a very big part of vanity too is because the cameras are on you. <clears throat> Everybody's looking at you. Your beauty, your vanity is right out in the front. One actor we knew, and he was a very, very good actor. I won't name him because I don't want to embarrass him. But he was, he's incredibly skilled. And um, he was put into special education in fourth grade, and he never got out. And because he was dyslexic, and they didn't really treat it well back then. So he's, can learn, he can learn his lines. He can learn anything. Mm -hmm. And he's tremendously gifted. And he's so gifted, I can't tell where his craft ends and his skill, where his natural skill ends and his craft that he's Technique. learned begins, yeah. which is actually really a tremendous compliment. It's seamless. Yeah. He's wonderful. But yet he's a human being who got put in special education in fourth grade and never got out. Yeah. It's a very... So, <clears throat> It's very troubling business in a lot of ways. If if, and you know, if you have a million people that come to be an actor a year, five make it, yeah. three make it. Yeah. It's not the mathematics yeah. are not, they're not good. Especially for you know, it's it's horrible for every but everyone. It's worse for women. I remember when we were with a manager, and uh, he was looking. He was representing a young woman, and she was uh, twenty five. And um, apparently, I'd never met the woman, but we, we were having a conversation about it. She was very beautiful, very talented, everything else. And she met with one of the major agencies, and um, they decided not to represent her because they felt she should have accomplished more by her age. Mm. And when he, he said, well, why did you tell them your age? He said, she said, I didn't. They figured it out. We knew certain, we had certain mutual acquaintances, and they pieced together when I graduated, and they yeah. figured out how old I was. Yeah. yeah. But there's definitely a craft and oh, yeah. just a talent. Huh? Yes, a, absolutely. It is an anointing. Yeah. It is an anointing like any other anointing. But you can uh, learn it. You can learn it. If you have an aptitude for it. Uh, it's like it's like music. You, there will always be, every individual has a certain, certain aptitude. Uh -huh. And then it's a question of how much time you put into it. Some can yeah. do very well. But it with, needs to be an obsession for you to be great. Like anything else, you need to be totally committed totally obsessed to that craft yeah. everyone else is going out on a thursday night you're in acting class mm. <clears throat> nothing comes i mean occasionally once in forever somebody just walks into a room and knows how to act lights it up and lights it up and but it's a, a natural it's like a singer with born with perfect pitch you know mm. it's it's one in a million mm. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. This, um, I've got to run myself, but thanks so much for the movie. I can't wait to see it and all your work. And I'm thank so you, excited. Thank you, Father. God bless. Faith into it, so.